this week's episode of In Her Shoes could contain themes and discussions which could be considered triggering to some of our viewers. This includes references to eating disorders. Additionally, none of the participants in this episode have medical training or come from medical background, so everything that is said is purely anecdotal and based off personal experiences. Hello everyone and welcome back to In Her Shoes where this week we are talking about women in sport. So I honestly don't know that much about sport, I'm not going to lie, I'm not a sports journalist, don't really plan on being one. Um, but that is why we have the very beautiful Rebecca, who is our wonderful sports journalist on the MA course, to help us out here. And we also have a very special guest today. We have Abigail Robinson, who is the two-time world champion in paraclimbing and is on the GB team and is also a head coach down in Swindon. So she's going to be here to talk about disability in athleticism and her experience with that. So I think it's important to talk about women in sport because, well, obviously I don't really know that much about women in sport, but I have heard a lot of things about pay gaps, pay disparities. So Rebecca, I'm going to kind of pass this over to you, kind of as your experience being a sports journalism. Do you think there is a main kind of glaring problem with sexism in sports? Or what's what's kind of your experience with it? Or is there anything that you've, you've discovered? I think that it's like two separate things. There's like my experience as a sports journalist and sports fan, but also as a sports person, how that affects you. So I'd say kind of as a sports person in various sports but we'll, we'll go for football as that's like the, you know the, the biggest sport um in this country i think stuff like that is getting better because i'd say like when i was a kid I, I used to play football a lot and there was no like female athletes to really look up to no female female footballers there were but they just weren't like on telly or you know well advertised for for going to games and stuff whereas now it, it's just getting better and better and better. Like the WSL, so the main women's football league over here, it, it gets airtime on like BT Sport, um, free free to view on BBC Red Button and BBC iPlayer. It's like big matches as well. And there's a lot of attraction with like superstars, you know, the legendary Viviane Miedemar, uh, Pernil Harder's just come over from Germany, which is very exciting. So I think now as a kid, sort of growing up boy or girl there are so many sort of female sports stars to look up to because they are getting a lot more a lot more time on the telly a lot more stuff written about them reported on and that that is fantastic to see i think the problem is though there's still sexism in in those areas and there still is a stigma i mean you've just got <laughs> you've just got to see really like the bbc tweet out you know regular articles about how teams are doing and stuff, you know, posting things about how Vivian Miedemar is the best player in the world, no doubt. And there's just horrible comments underneath, you know, why do we care, you know, put something better on, etc., etc. You still get that. And I think that if you're a fan, you're kind of like in a bubble, you're like, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm surrounding myself with like-minded people who enjoy watching women's sport and, and stuff. But it's like going on social media. You just you just see how crap it is, really. I mean, it, it's just not not everyone shares that same viewpoint. And, what and about... I think it, it's got a lot lot of stuff to do. Sorry. No, it's fine. Just what about like like you said about how kind of you're in like a like minded bubble, and then people on social media say other things. But what about kind of the quality of football? Because a lot of things that I hear from men, like I don't really watch that much football. I will watch Sunderland games. I know. It's not that great at the moment, but I watched some. It's really not ideal. I know it's terrible, <laughs> and I'll watch the World Cup, 
I get really into the World Cup, but I think that's more about just kind of the atmosphere and the pages yeah, around yeah. it. But with the World Cup that was on in 2018, what I heard from a lot of men was them saying, yeah, but the quality's just not good. Or like, it's just not as good. It's not as competitive. They can't play very well. What do you think about that? Do you think there is anything behind that? Or do you think that is... Like, what do you think? Do you think the quality's just as good? Or do you think that it's it's kind of sexism masking itself as... Is any is kind of an acceptable, if you want, form of misogyny? I wouldn't say it's not as good. I'd say that the quality is different to men's football. And I think you can put that down to something that happened in the past. So this is me whipping out the history degree. So in the early 20th century, women's football was huge in this country. I mean, we're talking at Boxing Day 1920, 53,000 people piled into Goodenson Park to go and watch uh, the Ditka ladies play St. Helens AFC. Um, and they raised £3,000 for charity, which is a substantial amount of money in those days. And then less than a year later, uh, the FA banned women's football. So women's football suffered a huge setback until arguably the early 70s and even then they didn't get the backing that they needed and I'd argue that that's something that we're still sort of facing the repercussions of because men have had that time to you know develop skills and stuff but you're talking about a good 50-60 years where women have just been put on the back foot even though you know what 1910s 1920s like the football was class from from all the reports and diaries that historians have looked at so I'd say that the quality of football is different and that setback hasn't really helped it. But I'd say that over the last sort of few years, as I said before, the more backing you're getting, the more funding you're getting and the support you're getting from, from clubs and, you know, the, the more training and sort of switching that sort of amateur status to becoming semi-professional to becoming professional is happening a lot more. So I'd say that it is different because you know men and women are different um, but I wouldn't say that it's like boring or anything like that I think you've you've got to bear in mind that skill level's still there like you know whenever I hear a bloke say that I'm like literally mate I'd love to see you up against some of like the best talents in the world at the moment because I know for a fact you won't be able to hack it so yeah it, it's different and I, I do think that the the 1921 ban was partially to blame for that in in this country but you know it's never really going to be the same is it and then you were saying about kind of yourself as a sports journalist and a sports fan kind of what's your experience been like with that as well because I guess that is a very male dominated industry sports journalism I I think I've been quite fortunate to be a Sunderland fan not many people say that but Sunderland fans are like the friendliest people on the planet like I remember being a kid and you know sat in the stadium like with my dad and there's like no woman in sight um and like everyone's just really friendly and uh, you know talk to you and stuff and it it's fine i was a bit apprehensive with a couple of sports journalism things i've had to do this this year but everyone who i've encountered at different clubs and stuff has just been so supportive and so lovely and like the fact that i am a woman reporting on sport hasn't been an issue although in the past, there's maybe been one or two times where my gender's been called into question, like writing an article and posting it online. And I, I really don't mind if people disagree with me because that that's the whole point. Football people are going to disagree with you. But there's been a couple of times where people have sort of 
question like the legitimacy of the article because I'm a woman and not a man writing it, which just isn't really fair to be honest. And there's also been a couple of encounters in the past with people who I've maybe you know done stuff with and they maybe haven't treated me the same because I'm a woman and, and not a man. Um, and it is a male-dominated industry, but I think it's getting a lot better. I think you can see that from the amount of women who write in sports pages now. Like, the Times is is pretty good. They've got fantastic coverage from, like, Molly Hudson and Elizabeth Ammon, the cricket writer, who, who's brilliant. So I'd say it is changing. Um, but for me personally, it's it's been all right, like, as a fan. As, as a journalist, you know, everyone's just sort of, oh, brilliant. I think as long as you sort of know what you're talking about, you're all right. Do you ever feel like, because like you said, it's being, the, the article's legitimacy has been questioned just because of your gender. Do you ever feel like you have to work twice as hard than male sports journalists? Or do you feel like, has that not been a problem for you? Yeah, I always feel like that. I think, although it, it's never happened, whenever I'm like doing a match report or doing an article or something like that, I always like triple check it for mistakes, you know, just because I feel like if a guy did the same thing, it'd be like, oh, he's just made a daft error. But if I did it, it was like, oh, you know, silly girl. And to be fair, I, I don't think that like an editor or someone would necessarily think that, but I think it's kind of like a, a bit of a predisposed thing to sort of feel like that. And that that is wrong and I don't know if I'll I'll be able to shake that but I hope, hope I can but like I say like triple checking articles being like what's the scoreline definitely 1-0 you know so yeah and do you feel I mean both of both of you guys can can answer this one have you ever seen things either witnessed it in kind of stadiums or witnessed it in sports ground and um, whatever sport it may be or seen things online that is blatant sexism because I know once I had an experience, I was in the Sunderland Sunderland grounds. I can't remember who it was against. I want to say it was against Oxford. It was last year, you know, back in the day where we were allowed in. Um, <laughs> and and they had a, a female... Oh, what are they called? This is how bad I am at sports. What are they called? Um, physiotherapist, obviously. She ran on the pitch because someone was injured. And then she kind of had to walk around the pitch the long way back as they resumed playing. And when she was walking around the, the stand, wherever she went, you could hear the crowd kind of yelling things or murmuring and when she got next to us someone behind us said and I can't say the phrase because it does have a swear word in but it said I can smell your mm from here oh god no no and no. I remember just like looking around at like my like the people I was with like my family and going like did you hear and everyone just kind of shrugged off and was like oh well yeah but it's football but I was like well no I'm sorry that's ridiculously inappropriate like you would never say that about a man like like I would never like a male football player in front of me, I would never be like, oh, I can smell your mm from here, right? It's just, it wouldn't even, wouldn't cross my mind. So I was, I was just wondering in terms of anything you've seen online or any kind of abuse you've seen. And I also saw in the NFL, it's either the NFL or it's a new student league. There's a, there's a female it player. The student league, yeah, a female player and everyone was, well, not everyone, obviously, but a lot of people were commenting saying like, oh, I hope she gets like taken out. I hope she's like destroyed and, are you just really horrible comments just simply because of her gender? So I was just wondering if anyone else has ever experienced anything like that, seen anything like that, if it is just certain individuals or if you think it's widely accepted in sporting events. I feel like with those examples you've just given, though, it's like a case of 
a woman coming into a man's world. So I feel like it's kind of a, oh, you've sort of got your thing, we've got ours, let's just not let them cross. Like the woman physiotherapist and the the woman playing NFL, which is quite interesting because you just don't see it that often either. Um, I think that the NFL, once she was the first one in the big five leagues in college football, because it's such a complex system to, to do that. But yeah, I feel like that's kind of an intrusion almost, isn't it? Which yeah. is strange. Because like in just coming back to like women's football again, because that's where I'm most clued up. And even in like other sports like cricket and, and rugby and stuff, you've got a lot of male coaches. So it's like a lot of women's coaches, but it's not uncommon to see like a, a man managing teams like Joe Montemuro has had so much success with Arsenal women and nobody bats an eyelid at that. Whereas it always makes the news, doesn't it? When there's like a, a woman who I think was managing a third tier French team, I want to say. And like the blokes were like, yeah, we're not bothered. She's a good coach, like the, the team, but the fans were kind of like, well, how do you manage in the dressing room and stuff like that? And she's like, I'm a coach first and foremost. You know, that doesn't really come into play. Sorry, just to completely drift away from, from your question. No, it's it's good. Like, it's really good examples. And what about you, Abigail? Have you ever experienced anything like that, seen anything like that? Or has it all been kind of... I think, um, I mean, obviously the examples that you're talking about within sports like football, I think... I'm not massively experienced within football. I've been to a few football matches, but I wouldn't say I'm a huge football fan, really. But I think there's there's a real culture around sports like football that makes comments like that almost acceptable. And I think that's a real issue. That's why there's a lot of... We already know there's a lot of racism in football. There's a lot of sexism in football. There's a lot of... You go to a football match and everyone's chanting different things and singing songs and... I think deep rooted in that culture, there is a lot of a lot of prejudice towards minorities, towards women, towards ethnic minorities, and and it is a real problem, and it, it's something that I think just gets brushed off as oh, it's just a laugh, or it's just football. This is what it's always been like, and and it's not an excuse at all, really. And what about in in climbing? Because I don't I don't really know that much about climbing or the kind of. It sounds like a very chilled out culture. Yeah, it's quite known for being quite a chill culture and that was one thing that really drew me towards the sport was how just chill and inclusive it was I mean I grew up doing I wasn't massively sporty growing up but I I did do dancing for like I did ballet for about 10 years and I mean within the culture around dancing that was while I was only a young kid it was it was quite a hostile environment it was quite a stressful environment environment for me and it wasn't really one I felt like I fit in so when I switched to climbing that was what really drew me in was that it was such a a supportive and inclusive environment and I never felt I felt like I finally had a place that I fit in I was always a tomboy growing up so feeling like I, I was in this environment with loads of outdoorsy people who didn't care whether I was a girl or a boy or whatever or whether I was a tomboy or how I dressed um it was just about you know if you just supported people if they were psyched and if they put effort in and that was all that mattered um and that was that was really nice for me but I think as I've grown up I have noticed more comments being made I would say it's a bit more subtle sometimes and it's more to do with 
body shape. I think because my sport is um, like strength, it's a strength based sport, it's a strength and power sport. So, you know, I'm going to build muscle in my upper body and body shape is, it's not the most important thing for the sport, but it's something that gets commented on quite a lot. Um, and that can be really damaging for both men and women. I know both men and women within climbing that have had real issues with their body because of the whole concept that being lighter is better and being lighter at all costs is better. But I'm completely going off topic here, but I've had, I, I, I've lost count of how many times I've had men say to me when they've seen me training, when they've seen me doing pull-ups with, you know, 20, 30 kilograms extra weight on being like, oh, careful, you don't want to get too muscular because men don't like that. I'm like, I'm not doing it for men. I'm doing it for me. And, you know, I'm, I don't care if, I, I, like, I want to be muscular. I want to be muscular for my sport. That's what's important to me. I don't care whether you don't think that muscles look good on a woman. That I couldn't care less about that. Personally, I think muscles look great on a woman. But I don't care about how I look. That's not what's important to me. What's important to me is that I do well in my sport. And, yeah, and I just think it's ridiculous. And I've, when I've said this to people that aren't involved in strength-based sports, they've found it absolutely insane that somebody would actually have the audacity to come up and say to me, don't get too muscular because muscular women just aren't pretty. Like, that's ridiculous. But there are people out there that will say those kinds of things and it's it's just it's just not acceptable well first of all i wish i could like do pull-ups with 20 or 30 extra kilograms like i i mean that is like the dream right (laughs) but as well so you said about kind of body image and things i know you've talked before about overtraining under eating in reds for anyone who doesn't know about those things can you kind of explain a little bit about what it is yeah, of course. Um, so, like I said before, um, I know quite a few men and women within climbing and other, especially weight-sensitive sports. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want to say weight-dependent sports because I don't think I, it's it's not a weight-dependent sport. You know, it's everyone assumes that lighter is better at all costs, and that's absolutely not true. You know, you can be as light as a feather, but you know, if you haven't got the, the physical energy or strength to be able to carry yourself up a wall then what's the use so especially in weight sensitive sports where the image is considered more important you can have some real issues with essentially people trying to lose too much weight um people over training and under eating and that happens in a lot of sports but i think it's really it's really common in like dancing in gymnastics it's becoming we're becoming way more aware of it in climbing as well um and loads of other sports out there so obviously so, I mean, if I, if I go into my own experiences, when I first got on the GB team, I didn't really know how to train properly. I had issues with my body. I wasn't entirely confident. And essentially, long story short, got into, after a couple of years, got into a, an unhealthy cycle of training a little bit too much and, and not fueling my body correctly. So while I looked probably like I was eating an appropriate amount, I wasn't fueling my body with enough carbohydrates I wasn't giving it the energy it needed and I wasn't fueling around my training so essentially what you then what and what can then end up happening is that because your body isn't getting enough fuel it's constantly working at a level of low energy availability so this can happen with both men and women um, but it is way more obvious in in women because a clear sign of that can be that they lose their periods and that 
stop having a menstrual cycle, essentially. This can also happen in, in men, but obviously they don't have the, the monthly reminder that they don't have that red flag, essentially. But what it can mean is that, is that your hormones are suppressed, essentially. Um, so this happened to me. Um, so I went to the doctors and got diagnosed with secondary, amen- secondary amenorrhea. So basically, you know, if you don't start your period before, I think, the age of 17 or 18, you can be diagnosed with primary amenorrhea. But if you've had a period and then you lose it for a considerable amount of time, I think they say around three months of not having a period, then that's secondary amenorrhea. So I lost my period for around nine months, but any kind of, any missed period should be, uh, you should see a doctor about that because you should never miss a period regardless, but especially after about three months, that's an issue. So essentially the, the, the easiest way to sort of explain this is if you think about your phone, if your phone's constantly running on low battery, what does it do? It goes into power safe mode. So it'll stop you from letting you use the flash, it'll stop you from using the camera, and it'll start shutting off things that it, that that really sap the energy from it. So that's essentially what your body will do. So if you're not fueling your body properly and you're asking too much of it, it will always prioritise movement. Because if we go back to our sort of prehistoric selves, regardless of what was going on, movement was the most important thing because we would have to be able to go for a long period of time without eating and then suddenly be able to run so that we could hunt and that we could catch food. So so movement is always the priority. So your body will slow down processes like your reproductive system, which is why you'll lose your period, your digestive system. So a lot of people that suffer from REDS or, or low energy availability will often find that they might feel bloated when they do have food, but actually that's because your digestive system's getting slowed down. But that can trick you into thinking, oh, I've eaten too much, I need to eat less. And you can get into a real a real bad cycle and it can really mess with your head. So essentially that's kind of REDS in a nutshell. So REDS stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. It used to be called the Female Athlete Triad, um, but then more recent research has found that it is in men as well, but it's obviously not as 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 obvious. But you'll see in men, they'll have lower levels of testosterone because all your hormones get suppressed, and they will have reduced erectile function basically as well. So that's quite an that's quite an obvious sign as well. So that's reds in a nutshell, and essentially what that can mean is that. At first, you might feel great, but what I found not having a period was there were a lot of real issues that I didn't really notice at first was that, I mean, obviously, you've got low energy availability, so I was feeling knackered all the time. I'd go to a training session and sometimes feel faint during my warm-up, and I was just constantly running on just this, like, I was functioning, but I was never making progress because you have, you've got fewer hormones running around your body, your hormones are all suppressed, your body's not able to make adaptations the way that it should. So actually, I was doing all this training for nothing because I wasn't able to recover. I wasn't able to build muscle. So I was just constantly running myself into the ground and not getting anything from it. So it's actually really counterproductive. What kind of support is available for people with REDS or what kind of resources are out there? So at the minute, it is still quite limited. For me... Um, I was really lucky that actually I was I heard about another climber, uh, quite a well-known climber that had just been diagnosed with reds around the time that I lost my period. So 
um, I actually got into contact with her and got some really useful information. This is how supportive the climate community is. I, I reached out to a couple of climbers that I knew that had it, and they were more than happy to help me out and point me in the right direction of people to talk to, which was amazing. Um, and there is a lot of support out there for people. You've just got to know where to look. Unfortunately, I do know of people that have had negative experience when they've gone to their GPs. I was quite lucky, I think partly because I knew in advance that it was probably going to be amenorrhea due to overtraining. I sort of, I knew that was what was, I kind of expected that. So I approached my GP with all the information. I'd, I had, I'd printed things out. I'd spoken to people and written notes and I literally turned up to my GP and was like, read all this. This is what I've got. So you handed in an essay I is just, what you did. Basically, yeah. <laughs> I did all the research um, because that's just me. I'm a SWAT. And I was just like, I think I've got this, but I just need you to confirm it so that I can make sure I go down the right route to sort it out. A lot of people will find that um, if they go to their GP saying that they've lost their period for a considerable amount of time, the likelihood is that the GP will ask you a series of questions and do blood tests looking for PCOS, which is polycystic ovary syndrome. And some people will get diagnosed with PCOS when it's actually uh, REDS. I was lucky that I spoke to my GP and was very open with them. I showed them these handouts that I printed out and said, look, I've lost my period. I haven't got any of these symptoms. My GP was really supportive and they said, right, we're going to do blood tests to check for PCOS, but more to rule that out. And then we'll look at our options. Um, when, my blood when my blood tests came back, they found that my uh, estrogen was, was really low. And I think, and some of my other hormones were a bit suppressed as well. But luckily I'd caught it quite early. I'd, I'd lost my period for about six months at this time. What some GPs will try and do as a result is put you on the pill to try and induce a period. But actually, if you speak to any expert in Red S, then they'll turn around and say that that's absolutely not what you want to do because the pill is that the point of the pill is to suppress your hormones. So actually, a lot of people, um, athletes who have been on the pill will find that that they come off the pill and don't get their period back if they've been overtraining and under eating because the pill actually that hides that because you're not getting a period anyway. So it kind of hides that obvious red flag. So a lot of the time, high performing athletes are encouraged not to go on the pill because that's suppressing their hormones. So it can have an impact on their performance anyway, but also it's it's hiding that obvious red flag each month that is telling you that your body's functioning optimally, basically. Because if you've got a slightly lighter period than usual and a regular period, or you're missing a period, then that suggests there's something wrong. And a lot of people, that can be down to stress, it can be down to all sorts, but all experts will say, you know, you should never miss a period. It's never okay to miss a period or have a slightly irregular period or offer it to be lighter. That should always be looked at. So I was really lucky that my GP spoke to an endocrinologist and said that they wouldn't put me on the pill after all. And then I got this. I got the blood tests that I needed and I got the support that I needed from others around me that had experience with REDS and from experts within REDS. So there's a really great lady called Rini McGregor, who is probably one of the leading experts in REDS, at least in, in the UK. And she runs a clinic that works with the strength and conditioning coach. I think they've got psychologists and she's um, she's a dietitian. And they can they, they as a team work with athletes to 
deal with disordered eating, to deal with um, coming back from reds, getting their period back, or you know, getting their hormones back to up, back up to normal. And they also have she also has a podcast called the Train Brave Podcast, and that's a brilliant podcast. One of their main goals is to create sustainable athletes. So you know, creating athletes that are going to be able to perform for years, not just perform at their peak for a couple of years and then be out of the sport because they've because of injury and all sorts so those are really great resources just to understand a little bit more about it but i think what i would say to anyone that thinks that you know if they're having issue like if they're if if there's somebody that menstruates that you know if they're having irregular periods then they should approach their gp but do their research first and make sure not to be disheartened if if they kind of get dismissed at first um, but yeah, definitely do your research first because unfortunately there's not enough research going into it at the moment. Well, thank you for that, Abigail. I'm sure that was that was really interesting for a lot of people listening because like you said, there isn't a lot of research. So before before we had conversations about it, I didn't even know what I had never heard of Reds. So thank you for coming on here and and speaking about your experiences so openly, but also hopefully providing a little bit of a, a little bit of an insight for people who don't know about it or who might have it but have never never really thought about it kind of moving away from from that and moving kind of more on a actual climate as well um is your your sport i know you've also been very open about about your disability Stargardt's Stargardt's disease yeah disease, yes also you've also spoken about how sometimes like before you got into paraclimbing you didn't think you were disabled enough so do you want to talk a little bit about that about your experiences being a disabled athlete and how that's had a knock-on impact with with reds as well yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, yeah, if we're going to go back to like when I just joined the GB team, maybe just before that, when I'd been diagnosed with Stargardt's disease, which for people who don't know is uh, a progressive eye condition that essentially impacts your central vision. So I have limited limited vision in the centre of my eyes, essentially. And I think there's a big stigma around disability and something that I took a little bit to personally at first when I first got diagnosed it wasn't really it wasn't an issue for me I didn't really take it very badly my, my parents took it worse than I did um I was just quite happy to have a name for it because we'd been trying to work out what was wrong with my eyes for years but I think it was really it really hit me when I first started getting referred to as disabled and I think there was such I had such a negative association with that word that that I would be that I was suddenly really vulnerable and and I, and I would be suddenly really dependent on other people and I'm I'm a really stubborn person I always want to be independent in everything I do and I consider myself as still a very independent person regardless of having a disability or not um and I think um especially in para sport there's there's not as much um exposure or support in para sport as there is in, for want of a better word, able-bodied sport. Um, able-bodied sport is much more in the limelight than para sport is, and I think um, it is getting better. The 2012 Olympics was a really a big turning point where para sport was really, really put on the same level. Um, and in climbing, that is happening to a degree. That is, we are getting much more recognised. And in the since I've joined the team, those these past few years, we have you know, tripled in size as a sport and we're getting so much more exposure and that's amazing. But there is still that underlying feeling that we're just not quite as good. And I think that can have a real impact on 
on the athletes and just feeling like they're not good enough and they're not strong enough and like we've got something to prove. So I think obviously on top of the the stresses and worries that you can have as an athlete anyway of especially in a weight sensitive sport of needing to be lighter, needing to be stronger, needing to be fitter, all those stresses of, of often athletes are a bit of a type A personality, are perfectionists and very self-critical. So you've got all of these in the mix, but then you're adding in having a disability that's going to affect you in your day-to-day life but then also on top of that feeling like you've really got something to prove and I think all of that can create just the perfect little mix of somebody that's that's basically an ideal candidate to have an eating disorder or to have you know so to have issues with with you know anxiety and performance anxiety or or overtraining or feeling like they need to make up for it in some way. So that was definitely something I think that impacted me. I was sort of using training as a coping mechanism and not a very healthy one. And yeah, to a degree that was in order to feel like I could be as good as the able-bodied people around me, the men around me, the, you know, everyone that, everyone that, that, that sort of society told me was better. So I do think that does have a real impact. And as much as overtraining, under-eating, eating disorders is really prominent in sport in general. I think it is really prominent in para-sport as well. And I know as well you said after, I can't remember if it was your first or second world championship, you said that you got feedback when you won of people saying that you weren't as disabled as the others. What, what kind of impact yeah. does that have? I think uh, it puts you in a real complex, to be honest. Um, I think um, at the time, this was uh, my first year competing, that I had comments. I still do get some comments, but but it was more prominent at at first um, that I had comments from people saying that, you know, she doesn't look blind. Um, I'm very lucky that I've adapted quite well to my vision loss because it... I've lost, I'm losing my vision very, very slowly. And because I still have my peripheral vision, my navigation is still really good. So if you saw me walking around the street, you wouldn't bat an eyelid. You wouldn't think that I had any kind of visual impairment. It's only if you shouted my name and realised that I was looking blankly around because I can't see anything, that you'd actually realise that there was something up. So I think, yeah, at the time, that really bothered me um, because I sort of felt like I was in this weird limbo of not feeling like I was included in the dis- in the disabled community, but then also not feeling like I was included in the able-bodied community. And that can be really isolating for people. And I think I was lucky that I, first of all, met more people that were like me, that didn't that had invisible disabilities and that just coped with their dis- disabilities really well or were just able to adapt to them and didn't outwardly come across like they were disabled. But then also just over time and over in in experience I've just stopped caring and I've kind of realized that you know what's most important to me is that is is my sport and that I'm enjoying my sport and that I feel strong in my sport and, and you know I know for a fine fact that I qualify to compete and you know, if someone has a problem with the rules, then that's their issue, not mine. And that's it's easier it's easier to say that than it is to do. Obviously, if I said to myself like two years ago, just stop caring, <laughs> like that's I, I, like, that's just not going to happen. But I think with experience, um, you know, 
to a degree you just get used to it and you shouldn't have to but I think within para sport there is a lot of there can be a lot of issues with with classification because obviously everyone's disabilities are different and everyone deals with them in different ways so there's it's never going to be 100% fair but it's the same in 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 able-bodied sport I mean you'll have an athlete that's slightly taller than one or one you know who it genetically is slightly different that might put them in a slight advantage it's never going to be 100% fair and for most para-athletes they're just happy to be there they're just happy to be included and I'm just grateful for the opportunity to be able to compete all over the world because if I went into an able-bodied competition this you know I I would struggle because I wouldn't have the support of a site guide I wouldn't have the support of um having a headset with somebody be able being able to tell me where to go so I'm just grateful that I have that opportunity and I think most people the vast majority of athletes are just happy to be there but unfortunately within parasport there is always the question of should they be in that category are they too just are they too uh are they not disabled enough for that category and it's it is it is an issue absolutely I was just going to ask about the classification obviously like being a, a para-athlete um so do you think that a lot more needs to be done so it's kind of like two questions coming off that so the first being that there needs to be a lot more sort of said about para sports because for me the only time I'll ever see it is when the Paralympics comes around and usually it's like after the hustle and bustle of the Olympics and secondly just talking about classification as well do you think that a lot more needs to be done maybe within the para community but also to like ordinary folk about how um things are classified and why people fit into a certain thing obviously within the sport like you said you know there's there's a lot of people like should you be in this one should you be in that one but again a third question just coming off the back of it do you think as well with with that and you said about not all disabilities being visible do you think that that's something that can sort of come into play with para sport because during the coronavirus pandemic and the sunflower lanyards and there's been a lot of people saying oh you know just back off um you know not all disabilities are visible because there's been like supermarket spats and stuff so do you think that that could potentially help the sport i know there's about three or four questions in there so (laughs) that's all good um yeah as far as i think um i mean para sport isn't in the limelight as much as it should be that's 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 quite obvious um and i think a, a big issue with even when parasport is in the limelight, is that it's not always actually that accessible to people outside of the sport, whether they've got a disability or not. Um, there's actually, um, I spoke to a, a, a guy the other day who is a gold medalist um, swimmer in, uh, was in the Paralympics in 2000, and he set up um, a, a website or a, a program called Lexi, which you can probably find if you Google it, and it's L-E-X-I. And it's essentially breaks down the categories in para sports, and it's very visual, but then also is accessible to visually impaired people, and it has an audio description as well. But essentially, if you go and click down on any para sport, it will break down the classification system and it in a really easy-to-understand way. And that some things like that are really really important for the sport because it is really confusing there's different categories for every different sport 
and some sports have a million different categories we've got 20 in paragliding that's like men and women so obviously 10 categories in total and that's that's quite a lot but still the categories are really broad and you've got sports like athletics where there's a billion like there's so many because it's <laughs> such a because it, because athletics is such a big a big sector of sport mm-hmm. so making i think it's a mix of putting para sport in the limelight more but then also making it more accessible for people that don't understand it because i mean just because i just because i understand the classification system in paragliding i could watch athletics and i have no idea what's going on <laughs> like it's it's completely different um not only is it a different sport and it might not be a sport that you've watched before but then you add in categories and it gets so confusing so i think there is uh, there needs to be sort of work to be done on both sides really um to make para sport to put to put us in the limelight a bit more and, and make it more inclusive for everyone to um to kind of get more support as far as sorry what was the other question about um just about how um sort of you you're talking about not all disabilities are visible and yeah. that's something that's been talked about a lot over the summer with the coronavirus pandemic is mm. that something that could sort of change culture both within and outside of parasport? I think that's an interesting one because I think it is completely down to personal opinion. Um, I used to, I've got a cane, um, like a long cane, that I have the option of using, but I most of the time don't. I'll use it only if I need to, usually in busy train stations or if I'm in a new place because then it makes me feel, feel more comfortable that if I look like I'm struggling or if I look like I'm lost or if I approach someone and ask for help they're gonna you know see the cane and immediately you know I'm not gonna get it in the neck from someone yeah. especially when you're in a train station a lot of people are rushing around they're quite busy and people can get quite rude but if they see someone with a cane you get people running up and saying do you need help finding your platform and it's and it's it's also just like a stress thing for me it calms me down knowing that if I'm if I walk into someone I don't see someone they're not gonna go at me because as soon as they see the cane it's fine but most of the time I'd prefer not to use anything not because I'm ashamed of my disability in the slightest but because sometimes I just don't want to have to mention it and I don't want it to be my entire identity I don't want it like if I don't need to bring it up then I won't I'm not ashamed of it in the slightest I'm constantly making jokes about how blind I am I'm the first one to make a joke about myself but I try not to take myself too seriously and I don't want it to be the only thing that defines me, really. And I think for a lot of people with invisible disabilities, they also quite like that. You know, I know some people that have disabilities that are much more visible that would rather they didn't have to bring it up all the time and they'd they'd rather it wasn't the elephant in the room because it's obvious. And I think think it is totally down to personal, personal opinion. I pick and choose when I want my disability to be more visible when I want to use my cane um, depending on the situation because sometimes I just don't want to bring it up because it doesn't have to be a thing really so I think it is totally a personal thing. Abigail just based off what you've what you've said there I know during the pandemic obviously there was a lot of one-way signs there was a lot of different rules and regulations that came about and also in like supermarkets I know you've said to me that you've have to 
obviously you have to like pick things up to like really put it next to your eyesight to like next to your eyes to see ingredients and things for you know to check for like allergies and things and then obviously seeing all the arrows and things how how did you find that and did you ever find that people were, were more accepting if you kind of had to bring up your your disability just kind of based off what you've said then and also what Rebecca said about that being kind of brought in the limelight during the pandemic how was your experience yeah um I definitely found at first when the one-way systems and stuff were just getting introduced especially when we were deep in lockdown and there were everyone was really strict about the rules um I did start using my cane it made me feel just a little bit more comfortable knowing that other people were aware that you know I might not see someone out of the corner of my eye and I might get a little bit too close I'm probably going to have to pick things up so that I can read them and then I'm going to put them back um and I think being a young person with a disability that doesn't look like they've got a disability if I didn't have my cane out people would kind of I could I could see people being like sort of giving me looks probably thinking god just another typical young person not caring about the pandemic not caring about us um just being really dismissive and while I don't really care what people think I also don't particularly want young people to just be tarnished with the same brush really um I didn't really like that so a couple of times I did go in and uh, I did go into supermarkets and I'd have my cane folded up and then I'd be looking at things and picking things up and then as soon as I heard people tutting, I'd whip out my cane and then see them <laughs> immediately run away. <laughs> so I had a bit of fun with it. Um, but, you know, if you can't laugh about it, what can you do? Um, so I think, yeah, I definitely found using a cane, especially at the start, was, was really useful just to make me feel more comfortable, but also because I, I didn't really... Um, yeah, I didn't. I didn't want people thinking that I was just completely ignoring the rules or, or kind of, yeah, tarnishing me with that brush. Um, but now I'm I, now I know I'm familiar with the spaces. I know warehouse one-way systems and warehouse signs, and we're all pretty aware of the rules by now. So um, I don't really feel the need to use it anymore. And as well, just off kind of the back of the pandemic, going back to to sports, obviously gyms were closed, climbing centres were closed. How did you find that being an athlete? Did you find it stressful? Were you, did you have to get a little bit more? I mean, I know you, you built a climbing wall in your back garden, um, which is really impressive, to be honest, much more creative than I am. Um, I was just doing like pure gyms home workouts, but how did you find that? Did you, <laughs> did you feel a bit, did you get stressed? Did you, what was your experience like? Yeah, I mean, well, actually, lockdown came at the time when I'd just been sort of diagnosed with amenorrhea due to overtraining. So it was kind of right at the beginning of lockdown that I'd got confirmation. That was the reason why I'd lost my period. So lockdown was kind of the ideal opportunity for me to take a break and for me to focus on getting my period back. Um, But of course, that's not what I did. Um, Because I think with, I mean... One of the big things with um, with Red S is that it's it's to do with stress. Both it can be physical and mental, um, or a mix of both. So when I lost my period, it was it was through my final year of uni. So I was very stressed because I was I was finishing my degree. I had lots of other things going on at the time, and 
I was dealing with that by training too much. So I had lots of mental stress and then lots of physical stress and then not fueling my body to deal with all that. So um, that was just a wonderful mix. And then obviously when we went into lockdown, there was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of stress. I was finishing my degree. Um, I was uncertain about what I was going to do after uni. There was a lot of stress going on there. And actually when we went into lockdown, I went really hard on the home training um, to deal with all that. So I had even more stress and then even more training. And I very quickly realised that wasn't sustainable. So... Yeah, I went really hard on the home workouts and then building my whole wall. Um, but then actually kind of sort of hit a bit of a breaking point and realised this was not sustainable at all. This wasn't really a way to be living, to be so so caught up on what I was eating, what time I was eating, how much I was training. Um, and it just wasn't, I wasn't living, I was just surviving. Um so, yeah, I took a step back then. Um, there were a few things that kind of were a bit of a breaking point for me then. Not only did I realise I wasn't enjoying enjoying anything anymore, and I certainly wasn't enjoying food and I wasn't enjoying training, um, but also, I mean, obviously when your hormones are suppressed, you, you're, not, you're not getting the same, like, mood swings that you would when you're on it when you're having your period but also I just found that generally my mood was just pretty neutral I wasn't particularly happy I wasn't particularly sad a very noticeable thing is that your libido massively drops um and that was that was an issue for me and um and also I had the the fear in the back of my head that the longer that this went on the more I was going to have to do to get my period back and the fear surrounding eating more and training less enough to get my period back if I let it go on for years and years then that would be even more difficult and my body might change and I might have to come stop training altogether so I was like right I need to I need to get this sorted now because if I start if I if I catch it early then I can just reduce my training but if I let it go on for years then I might have to stop training altogether for a long period of time because I know people that have had to do that and that was more terrifying than anything for me so I really reined it in after that um and I learned a little bit more about you know how the menstrual cycle works how to train around that how to fuel properly um and yeah I really did my research and just allowed myself to rest and actually my period came back I think in July maybe June um and it's still it's 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 almost regular again. Um, I mean, it's pretty it's pretty regular, but um, there have been a couple of dips, um, just because there's been some stressful things going on lately. Um, but that's something I'm really getting a handle on now. So um, lockdown was actually a blessing in disguise. <laughs> and you said about training around your period. I know. Can you can you talk a little bit bit about that? Kind of what that what that concept is. Yeah. So I think one of the one of the biggest issues. Oh, one, not one of the biggest issues. Well, um, one of the bigger issues that's kind of coming into light now is that a lot of the research that's done into training is done on men and then applied to women as if they're small men. Um, and that's a real issue because physiologically, males and females, and I'm, I'm talking about biological sex here, um, not, not gender or how someone identifies, but biologically, males and females are physiologically different. Um we have different hormones going around our bodies. 
and that does have an impact um and especially in if you look at women we've got our hormones are way less stable than men's and that doesn't have to be an issue so yes a male body is different to a female body that doesn't mean one's better than the other and um, there's pros and cons to both just as, as there is with everything but the key thing is that we just need to treat them differently in order to thrive so by studying how training and nutrition is affecting a man and then just applying that to a woman is not going to work in the same way because our bodies are fundamentally different so massive disclaimer here that i'm not an endocrinologist um i'm not a dietitian i'm not an expert in this field at all but there are some amazing experts out there so absolutely do your own research and there's some great resources out there but if you look at your cycle you've got essentially two phases the follicular phase which is where you start it starts when you have your period and then you've got your luteal phase which starts just after ovulation so actually in that first week of your period um that's when often you can get some of your that's where you can often get your pbs you can get the best out of your um kind of max strength um I mean, maybe not in the first couple of days. If you have really bad cramps, that can obviously be an issue. Um, for me, I don't really suffer from that too much, but I will find that I've got the most energy. During that first phase, your body's way better at using fat for energy as well as carbohydrates. That doesn't mean that you need to cut out carbohydrates altogether, but what it does mean is that you can get more energy out of what you're fueling your body with. And in that second phase, that's when you need to be maybe giving yourself a little bit extra energy Um maybe stacking up you know, a lot of people will find in their last week of uh, their cycle anyway just before they come on their period that they're just craving carbs and that's probably because your body needs more um i mean i crave but carbs yeah during that every every day of the month you know that doesn't really yeah i yeah, mean every yeah day, literally grade, um <laughs> and actually in that last week in that in that kind of pms week that's when you're way less coordinated um and you often have less energy so Ideally, that's the week that you want to be taking a deload week. Um, maybe doing focusing more on movements that are going to require coordination. Because if you do that during a week when you've got less coordination, then you're going to be mint the rest of the time. You're going to be chilling. So, um, so actually, if you look at like periodized training, um, if you can structure that around your cycle, so that you're doing, you know, your max strength work. In the first in the beginning of your follicular phase then kind of in the second half of your follicular phase and and the first part of your luteal phase if you're just doing kind of steady work and then tapering down and have a deload week just before your period that's kind of what is being suggested is going to be optimal for most women but there is still ongoing research into this and like i said i'm absolutely not an expert um, it's something I'm kind of playing around with at the moment, but my periods still aren't entirely regular. But what I have found is that, um, actually, I think it was, it might have been the first period I got um, after having nine months of nothing, that I had a training session and I felt incredible. Like, I, I, and that was a really good moment for me because it reminded me what I could achieve when I had a cycle. Um, and it kind of, I've kept that 
moment in my mind because every time I feel like under eating, every time I feel like overtraining, I remember that first session I had after getting my period back and I was just like, I felt on it. I felt incredible. I mean, there's lots of things at play there. You know, I might have had a really good night's sleep as well and I'd had a good couple of days rest beforehand, but also just having your hormones naturally, you know, functioning optimally and being able to get those adaptations. Um, I just felt like I could lift an extra 10K and it was amazing. Um, so I think that there's a lot more research going into training around your menstrual cycle um, and there's a lot more resources out there. Um, and I think that will be the way forward in allowing women to really achieve those top goals that, um, you know, maybe have been kind of holding us back a little bit because at the end of the day, if we're not going to get the support that we need to for our bodies, then we're never going to achieve our best. We're never going to be able to reach our potential. So, you know, I think there's a massive issue with the research that's being done on uh, on, on women's bodies in sport. Well, thank you so much, Abigail. Thank you for, for coming on talk about everything. Right. It's been really interesting. And hopefully there's a bunch of women who are listening to this who are now going to, like, change up their training schedules and and start lifting 10k at the the first week of their cycle um <laughs> but yeah thank you thank you so much for for coming on thank you to rebecca as well that was really insightful as well about the football because i had no idea about the 1920s football ban 1921 neither did um, i yeah i know who would have oh <laughs> honestly i could go on about it for days don't get me started don't get me started i was gonna say i can imagine i can imagine you doing that as like your thesis or something at the end of the year, like <laughs> slamming Honestly, Newsday next year, right, listen here, but yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. All right, well, thank you so much for the wonderful guests on the show today and thank you so much for everyone who's tuned in and listened to this. I hope it's been just as informative and interesting for you as it has been for me. In Her Shoes is going to be back next week, so I will hope to see you then. Thank you very much for tuning in and have a great week.